Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Amy Lee Bowler. She's a PhD candidate, sports nutritionist, and registered dietitian, and we are discussing her research all about the use of continuous glucose monitors for athletes. We discuss glucose metabolism and what impacts glucose use outside of just the food we eat and the sporting context. We discussed what the continuous glucose monitor measures and what it might be able to tell us about fueling the athlete or not. We discuss the strength and limitations of CGM use in the athlete context and where Amy feels the application for this is going. We also discuss a recent paper from her PhD looking at dietitian practices at assessing for energy availability in athletes and the key considerations for research found. So Amy is a seasonal dietetics tutor and teaching fellow at Bond University. Her research seeks to understand the current practice pathways and subsequent dietary management used by sports dietitians when assessing and managing energy availability in athletes. Her PhD research ultimately aims to support sports dietitians managing energy availability in elite triathletes and Amy and I talk all about her own history in that triathlon space. She is studying under leading nutrition researchers in Australia and it was such a pleasure to be able to speak to her and sort of get the real current feel on the ground for these CGMs in the athlete context because there's just so much hyperbole out there about how they may or may not be able to be used. Before we crack on into the interview though, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. Alright team, I will put a link to Amy's profile and that paper into the show notes, but for now, please enjoy the conversation I have with Amy Lee Bowler all about CGM use in athletes. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning on what looks like a very hot sort of, or has been hot and humid in Brizzy. It's nice to hear that you're getting a little bit of a reprieve um, from that. Are you from Brisbane? Yes. Yeah. Always lived in Brisbane. Yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm actually on the Gold Coast today, but yeah, always lived in Brisbane. So. Oh, and do you do part of your research in the Gold Coast and Brisbane? or Because you look like you're in some sort of like laboratory. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm actually based predominantly on the Gold Coast for most of my um, PhD study. And then I also work on the Gold Coast, but I live in Brisbane. So I do a lot of travel. Um, but yeah, predominantly everything's on the coast for me. Yep. Okay. So you are you're a registered dietitian and you're also a PhD candidate and you're looking at energy availability and elite triathletes. 
Yeah, so I guess when I started my PhD, we sort of had um, a bit more of a focus on elite triathletes because my so my supervisor, um, Dr. Greg Cox, he's quite a well-renowned and established um, sports dietitian um, in Australia. Um, and I'm sure there's some um, Kiwis that would know him quite well as well. But um, so he's got a very extensive background um, in triathlon, worked with triathlon and uh, went to a number of Olympics with them. So when I started my PhD, we started out looking specifically in, in triathletes. Um, and I guess as we've kind of gone through the journey, we've expanded our study a little bit to look more um, at endurance athletes in general. Obviously, we know that low energy availability is a really prominent issue um, in endurance athletes in particular and so I guess expanding expanding our search and and including a number of other athletes in our study has just broadened our scope and allowed us to sort of look at the effects of, of energy availability on other athletes as well. My other supervisors um, Vernon Coffey and Professor Louise Burke who I'm sure a lot of people know um, have been involved in a lot of other sports as well so we just kind of felt that um, it was best to broaden our scope and, and have a look at all endurance athletes and, and the effect of energy availability on them. So, yeah. Yeah. Now that's awesome. And Amy, are you an athlete? Uh, so I used to be, um, and I guess this is kind of how I got into nutrition and dietetics in the first place is that, um, so when I was younger, I was, I was actually a swimmer. So um competed at national level um, in, in swimming and, um, I saw a sports dietitian, um, Angelique Clark, actually, and she was still practicing um, in Australia. And um, I don't think she knows this, but um, sort of when I saw her, I kind of got inspired and thought, okay, this is something that I really want to do. Um, and so from there, it kind of just, uh, I guess it just happened where I um, started a nutrition and dietetics degree um, myself just out of uh, out of interest and then having always had that sporting background myself um, and being interested in in sport that's kind of I guess why I went down the sports dietetics, dietetics path so yes but yes answer to your question I, I did used to compete in swimming don't sort of do it as much anymore but um, still enjoy a little bit of a, a power around the pool every now and then. Oh, no, that sounds awesome. And so, Amy, with your – so part of your research, as I understand it, is looking at the practices of dietitians as well and, and um, looking at um, how they might identify athletes at risk of low energy availability. Can you kind of talk us through that component of your research and some of the things that you've uncovered? Yeah, for sure. So I guess first and foremost, just in case there's anyone listening who might not be aware or fully aware – so that study looked at low energy availability or, or LEA as we referred to it. And so that often occurs when there's this mismatch between um, an athlete's energy intake and their uh, exercise energy expenditure or their, or their uh, energy expended during training. And so when an athlete doesn't have um, the adequate amount of energy to support um, the training that's going on, we often see perturbations to a number of physiological functions so things like immune immune health um reproduction thermoregulation and i know noticed you had jose arita on who's an expert in this field um he's got an excellent paper and i don't know if it's the paper that you covered but um with a diagram that that and it's a diagram i always refer back to because it's got all of the hormones on it that are disrupted when you're in low energy availability and exactly what happens yes. yeah and so that's, that's it's excellent um and i often refer back to that a lot so um i guess 
that's what our paper was interested in looking at was, well, okay, we know what low energy availability is and we know that sports dietitians or registered dietitians play a central role in managing low energy availability um, in athletes, but what kind of tools are they actually using to assess and manage athletes in practice and how effective might those tools be? And so the study that we did, we conducted it on 55 um, Australian sports dietitians um, and the study essentially found that sports dietitians are relying on the typical assessments of things like dietary intake, uh, training mm-hmm. load assessments um, and assessments of menstrual function um, to identify athletes who might be at risk of low energy availability. And we found that, I guess, the more difficult measures to conduct on a day-to-day basis, so things like sex hormone pathology, you know, where you've got to go to a lab and get bloods and, you know, go see a GP and or a sports doctor and, and, and get a referral and things like resting metabolic rate where you need a metabolic cart and you need the athlete to be you know, ready to um, lay still for half an hour and be fasted and and, and things like that, um, they were sort of lesser used by sports dietitians because they're just not as accessible um, to the sports dietitian. Um, and, and we know that there's a number of, of um, considerations that you need to take um, when you are doing these assessments. So, you know, for things like resting metabolic rate, you need someone who can run the cart. You need an athlete to be fasted. You need them to present really early in the morning. Um, and so that often presents a lot of limitations for sports dietitians when they are looking at which tools are going to be uh, the most beneficial or the most accessible or, or or realistic for an athlete to use when they're trying to assess low energy availability. Um, and so I guess... Um, for the most part, a lot of sports dietitians are using those tools that are more readily, readily accessible to them, you know, such as dietary intake because, you know, it's easy to say to an athlete, okay, you know, we need you to record your dietary intake for two to four days and, um, you know, jot down what time you're eating and and sort of what you're eating. But we also know that there's a number of um, inaccuracies with those kind of um, records. So we know that um, and there's a there's a good paper by Ida Hakura that's been published that talks about the the issues with dietary intake and training load assessments and and a lot of these um, assessments are often fraught with inaccuracies because there's a lot of underreporting or overreporting or you know it's simply just too difficult for the athlete to commit to recording their dietary intake for two to four days you know we we all know what it's like to try and sit down and remember what we ate or you know, remember to enter something into into an app or write it down. Um, so, so I think there's there's a number of issues with, with with some of those assessment assessment tools, and I guess that's what that paper was really interested in looking at was okay, what's being used, and and what might be um, either the benefits of using those or the or the limitations. Does anyone is it is the leaf questionnaire widely used, Amy? So that was another one that we sort of found wasn't really used by many sports dietitians. Um, and I mean, we didn't actually ask sports dietitians why they didn't use it, but I suspect one of the factors that contributes to that would be that we know that the leaf cues only validated for endurance athletes. So, for example, sports dietitians working with team sports. Um, weight making sports things like that sprint athletes we know that the leaf cue hasn't been validated for those also we know it's only obviously validated for female athletes so there's you know 50 percent or more of athletes that that we're not capturing with with the leaf cue 
Um, and so I think, yeah, a lot of a lot of sports dietitians tended not to use use the leaf cue, um, you know, in favour of using things like dietary intake assessment and training load. Um, and, and like I said, you know, using menstrual function to assess energy availability status was was one that was widely used. But then, how, how do we assess males? I guess is 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 another thing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and I think as well that sometimes. Um, if you you have that really robust marker, but uh, low energy availability is so much more than just the menstrual cycle, and I think that's a common misconception that you know females think that if they are getting their period every month, well, they can't possibly be in low energy availability. That's exactly right, exactly right, and it's the same thing with changes in body weight. So you know, a lot of the time we might see an athlete who's in low energy availability and they aren't necessarily dropping body weight. Um, and so I think that's, and that's something that I think is really important to consider when you are assessing, um, energy availability status is that oftentimes you need sort of, a, I guess, a bit of a toolbox with a number of different tools that you can use to assess an athlete because you might test. And like you said, with menstrual function, you know, likewise with things like RMI, you might test their RMI that might come out fine. You might look at their menstrual function. They're not menstruating. There might be hormones such as growth hormone or IGF-1 or whatever it may be, and they might be perturbed. And so then we might go, okay, well, we've got three things here that are leading leading towards a diagnosis of low energy availability. Yeah, RMI might not be showing that, but, you know, we've got a, a, a big sort of, um, I guess, pool of evidence here that we can use to support our diagnosis rather than if we had have just looked at RMI or menstrual function and that was fine. We would have marked them off and gone, yep, they're they're perfectly fine, but there might have been other underlying factors that we sort of haven't considered. So I definitely think, you know, with energy availability, unfortunately, there's sort of no one fits all tool. I think it's definitely, you know, we've got to use what we've got available and we've got to sort of use as many tools as we can to come up with that that diagnosis. Yeah, sure thing. And of course, uh, not everyone, and like I'm thinking from an athlete perspective, not everyone is going to go to a sports dietitian to uh, get these kind of things assessed. But there are certain things which, you know, if I'm an athlete and I suspect that, you know, if something's not going right, then that might be a sign of low energy availability, despite the fact that I'm menstruating or, you know. So what are some of those other more qualitative things, Amy, do you think that people could be on the lookout for that, that might raise some red flags? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think this is this is definitely something that we asked sports dietitians in that same study. So we asked sort of what cues they might look for. Um, and I guess that's the things that people can start looking for um, in, you know, if they are an athlete and they don't see a sports dietitian regularly. So things like body awareness cues, so being aware of, you know, are you feeling really hungry? Are you really fatigued all the time? Are you getting injured more often? Um, are you finding that you're really sick and you've got time out of training? And I guess that's one of the really important things to look for is how often am I missing training sessions? Is that increasing? Um, as I said, body weight's not always a factor, so that that might remain stable. So, so, um, but I think things like looking at hunger, fatigue, um, you know, decreases in appetite, um, yeah, looking looking at um, training load and how that might be affected, and also we know that, um, and this kind of leads nicely into um, talking about CGMs, I guess, is that we know that blood glucose can be 
um, disrupted, um, well, normal blood glucose control can be disrupted as, as a result of low energy availability. And so looking at some of the symptoms that might occur as a result of hypoglycemia or an increase in low blood glucose throughout the day. So um, so we, we might look at things like that to sort of prompt an athlete to go, okay, well, maybe I do need to go and see a sports dietitian. Maybe there is something going on here. Um, yeah. And, and another thing too, I guess, for males that we're starting to get more evidence around, and I know, um, a dietitian, Bronwyn Lundy's done a lot of research, um, in, she, she works for Rolling Australia, but she's done a lot of research into, uh, low energy availability in males. And, um, I guess one question that's sort of come out of, um, her research that's really important to ask, ask males is, you know, what's their libido like? And so I guess that's kind of the counteracting question to are you menstruating for females? Um, so that's another thing that males, I guess, could be on the lookout for if, if they've noticed that their libidos decrease significantly, that might be a sign of low energy availability. You know, it's such a good point. And of course, it's becoming much more uh, normalized to talk about the periods, you know, talk about it the is, menstrual yeah. cycle and stuff. Um that's a. I wonder what the conversation around libido and how normalize. And I think that's prob, that's the next obvious step, right? That we don't really often talk about because you know usually low energy availability is sort of has in the past been in that female camp, and it's only been in the last few years that it's you know acknowledged a male endurance. Yeah, that's that's exactly too. right. I mean, it's we've come from the female athlete triad, right, where we didn't even consider that this would be a thing that could happen in males, and I think. Um, again, this is an, another question that we did ask in the study was, well, how often do you ask males about their libido? And, and, and it wasn't frequently asked. And I think it's just, you know, it's it, it's similar to what you just said about how far we've come with with asking about periods and, and that being sort of the normal part of the conversation. I think at the moment, because it's such a new concept, a, a lot of us aren't super comfortable with saying, okay, you know, how's your libido going, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, my my uh, my PhD supervisor, he Greg Cox or Coxie, as he's as he's known by lots of people, he he sort of says to males, "Oh, how's your morning wood?" and and I think he, you know, he's so personable and and also he's male. Um, yes, but he 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 can kind of get away with that. But I think <laughs> you know, us as females, it's a little bit more difficult for us to ask that of a male. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's definitely it's something that w- I guess we, we need to work on and become more comfortable with. Um, totally. Like anything. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just because it's still a new concept, I think it will take us a little bit of time. And, and, and that's, you know, exactly what we've shown in the study, that there's lots of people who aren't asking that. And I think it's just from a, a it's a new a new concept and, and B, it's just something that we need to become more confident with, especially in a female dominated profession where, you know, we we are gonna see male athletes you you know, fifty percent of the time or whatever it may be. And, and and I think it's just becoming more confident and comfortable and having your own way of maybe asking that question that you you feel comfortable with. So Yeah. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's such a good point. And I think even us discussing it here will it sort of um pique the interest of people who you know male athletes themselves or other practitioners who are like actually that's such a good point I need to just get over that yeah 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 I think bringing it up as often as we can is is definitely a good thing 
Yeah. So Amy, yeah. Um, you mentioned CGMs, which is something which yes. I'm super interested in. <laughs> um, and it feels like for whatever reason, and this is, you know, I obviously I'm not in the research space with this at all, but I've got a professional interest, but it feels like it's quite contentious, actually, continuous glucose monitors in the use outside of a, um, a sort of diabetes specific condition. Um, look, I've had, I've talked to people a couple of times on the podcast about continuous glucose monitors, but I would love for you to, to first and foremost, give us a refresh on what they are, what they do, what they're used for. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, continuous glucose monitors have been historically used in, in um, individuals with diabetes to monitor um, blood glucose. So what CGMs are is they're a, a minimally invasive device. They sit um, in the subcutaneous tissue. So we usually attach them um, on the back of the upper arm. Some can be attached on the stomach or, or the lower back. Just depends on the device and where it's been approved for attachment. And what it does is it measures interstitial glucose and then it uses a calculation um, to estimate what that would equate to in blood glucose concentration. And so these devices have been validated um, and compared against the gold standard for blood glucose um, concentration. And we know that in diabetics, they are pretty, pretty accurate. So within 10% of, of estimating blood glucose. And there's, there's also actually been one paper done by Felicity Thomas that looked at the accuracy of them in athletes. And, 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 and it's actually been found that they've been pretty similar to diabetics, actually, if not a little bit more accurate um, in estimating blood glucose concentrations. And so what CGMs essentially do is they sit on sit on the back of your upper arm. Um, they allow us to look at the duration, magnitude, and frequency of any glucose fluctuations that might occur during the day. And then they provide this back to the user in almost real time. So the, the athlete um, who's using it uh, downloads an app onto their smartphone. All they have to do is swipe their smartphone over the device uh, and their blood glucose reading is right there for them to see. There are some new devices that have been developed specifically for athletes. Um, unfortunately, us over here in New Zealand and Australia, they're not approved here. Now, is that Super um, Sapiens and that yes. you're thinking of? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So Super Sapiens uses a specific device called the, um, I think it's called the Abbott Sports Biosensor. Um, so also developed by Abbott, which is a diabetes care company. Um, but the difference between these devices and the diabetic devices is that these use Bluetooth. So instead of the athlete having to constantly swipe and, and usually have to swipe every eight hours to keep the data um, in the bank, otherwise it'll start sort of chopping off data. So you've got to swipe it every eight hours. The benefit of Super Sapiens is that it's all through Bluetooth. So there's no, you still need to swipe every eight hours, but as soon as you open that up, you can see your blood glucose without having to swipe. Amazing. And you can see that consistently. Um, those devices are also a little bit different to the diabetic ones where they've got sort of a shorter range of glucose that they'll show you just for the purposes of, of athletes maybe misdiagnosing themselves so they just want to pre prevent that um but us so far we've used the diabetic monitors because they are very similar um just because it's hard for us to get them here but yeah as i've essentially in a nutshell the cgms allow you to sort of see your interstitial glucose an equation to to transfer that over um and then that's downloaded straight to your phone the devices usually last um about 14 days that's how long the other sensors last 
Um, and yeah, swiping, you can see all of your data there. You can see like your, your glucose patterns, you can see your average glucose over the day and any hypoglycemic episodes that might occur during the day. So Amy, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your research and your athletes and what, and you know, the potential limitations or the usefulness of it, um, clearly, like, obviously you've used one before. Yep. Did you <laughs> get any about six? Yeah. Okay. Did you get any surprises? <laughs> like, were you like, what the heck? Uh, not really myself. No. Um, I have, I have had, so my supervisor and he'll probably kill me for saying this, but he, he has worn a few as well. Um, he was going into a lecture and his <laughs> glucose spiked right up to about 13. <laughs> Stress response, obviously. Wow. He said, I think I'm going pre-diabetic. <laughs> I said, I think, I think you're okay at this point, but we'll just keep an eye on it. Um, but no, myself, no. I mean, it, it was the, the benefit of me wearing them myself was just to learn, I guess, the experience of wearing it and see what it was like. I mean, I, I still swim quite a bit um, and I wanted to test out what it would be like in the water because they haven't really been tested a lot. Um, obviously, you know, individuals with diabetes can wear them in the shower and things like that, but they've never really been tested um, when people have been swimming. And and to be honest, I found no, no real problem with it. Um, so it was a good experience for me. But, yeah, unfortunately my data wasn't overly uh, – interesting (laughs) so um so I I've used one before and in fact talking to you reminds me I've got two more in the garage and I'm like oh might pop that on after this yeah (laughs) um I um uh I had there are these protein bars which I do love they're called no cow protein bars and they're I don't know they're vegan I'm not vegan but they're vegan and they have um uh, a type of fiber in them that means that the the net carb is maybe two grams um ate one totally spiked my blood sugar which uh because and then I did a little bit of investigation and I'm, I want to say I've said it before in the podcast I think it's like the isomalta ligrosaccharide or something it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like that um but it, it is known to do that which is so from a from an interesting like I found that very interesting you know like yeah what people assume is going to happen with their blood sugar isn't always necessarily the case. And it might not even be the case every time they have a particular food either, given other sort of conditions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think, and I think that's something that, and I, I know we're going to talk about the limitations a little bit later on, but I guess this is something that we need to be considerate of when, when we are using CGMs is that there's a number of different factors that are going to influence glucose homeostasis and there's a number of important factors that people need to consider when they are using CGMs. So um, it's not just as simple as, you know, you swipe your device, you get your glucose, you, you might have eaten some carbohydrate, your glucose spikes. Like It's not always that simple. Um, I think there's a number of complexities that are associated with these interactions um, that we see. And, you know, whether that be um, someone's ingested some carbohydrate or someone's exercise and they get a post-exercise hypoglycemic response, um, maybe someone's got individual glucose fluctuations that occur um, depending on the type or intensity or duration of the exercise that they're doing. Um, also depends on the athlete's carbohydrate availability, their energy availability, and circulating systemic glucose as well. So, these are all going to influence the circulating glucose re- uh, data and results that we see. And so we also know that um, 
the circulating glucose concentration isn't always reflective of the glucose that's being released through the gastrointestinal tract and and subsequently the uptake into the tissues like the muscle and the liver. So Mm. I think there's a number of different considerations that we need to take into account when we are using CGM devices. And um, I guess this is what some of our research has shown is that it's really important to you know, understand what else might be going on when you're using a CGM device because, yeah, oftentimes, unfortunately, it's not just as simple as putting one on and, and, and there you go. It, okay. There's a lot of underlying factors, yeah. So, Amy, what can we use these for then? I mean, a- apart from the obvious, you know, measuring glucose, like so, so what are some of the benefits of knowing this information? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing that's really important to note is that at the moment we know that the application of mon- the glucose monitors in sport, it's, it's really largely untested. Um, but as, as I've mentioned, you know, these companies have come out with these sport-specific devices. And um, to date, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of research to support these devices that have come out. But we do know that there are a small number of studies that have investigated um, an athlete's glucose response to carbohydrate ingestion. And um, a lot of these studies have looked at using CGM devices during a race. So that's either a single day or a multi-day endurance event um, to monitor what happens during that event to an athlete's glucose um, following ingestion of carbohydrate. Um, now, these studies have sort of had mixed reports. So either the CGM has has been able to provide us with an indication of what's going on um, or, you know, there's sort of been a discrepancy between, okay, the athletes eating this much carbohydrate and it hasn't really been accurately reflected by their, by, by their blood glucose. And again, that sort of feeds into all of those background things that might be going on with glucose homeostasis that, that aren't taken into consideration by the CGM itself. I think, um, for us personally, we have looked at potentially using um, CGMs as a bit of a tool to investigate um, fueling strategies that are used by athletes like around exercise and during exercise and also as a tool to potentially monitor energy availability status. Now, the reason that we're looking at that, and I guess this feeds into what I said at the start, is that um, you know, we know that reductions in fasting blood glucose can occur as a result of, of low energy availability. And we know that this happens in about five days. We don't, we don't know. Um, there hasn't been a lot of research to investigate whether this happens more acutely. So whether we see that over sort of 24 to 48 hours. But I guess the benefit of CGM technology is that we're able to see everything in relatively real time. So what we're interested in in looking at is, well, We've got this tool that can show us what's happening in real time. Well, can it potentially identify things like low energy availability or suboptimal fueling on a day-to-day basis? And can we then address that in more of a real-time sort of scenario rather than waiting to further down the track when we see disruptions to menstrual function or, or, or bone density loss? Um, can, can we identify problems with an athlete's fueling status, you know, before that sort of occurs? But I think at the moment we're sort of in the really early stages of, of researching that. And I think, you know, I think at the moment there's relatively limited limited evidence to support the use of these in sport. And so I think it's this is why it's really important for us to talk about this this topic and, and research this further to sort of get some evidence behind it. 
Yeah. Okay, Amy. Because I, yeah, I'm really interested in that sort of the the application of it to determine sort of fueling strategies and and things like that. Um, I believe that I've seen out there on maybe it's Super Sapiens um, social media or in other um, media like that. Um, you know, very good runners like world class runners have used this information to help them determine whether they eat before a, a race or what they do sort of during a race, like. Can a CGM actually determine that, or is that the stuff that we are still trying to figure out? Yeah, so I know. Uh, I think you're probably referring to Kip Chogi, who's oh yeah, there you go. Of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's also a, a, a Blumenfeld, the triathlete, who's also worn it, um, Christian Blumenfeld. But um, and and so they have been marketed on the website as having worn them. Um, but Again, as I've mentioned, um, and I think Super Sapiens um, talks about this optimal glucose range, um, which, you know, there's just there's not a lot of evidence to support that. I think, mm. you know, for the most part, we, we can look at an athlete's blood glucose values and go, okay, is the athlete running low? If they are, then, then maybe we need to increase their carbohydrate intake. Um, you, you know, but there's not a whole lot of evidence at the moment to really support, okay, if you sit in this optimal glucose range, you're going to perform better. And I think that's where we really need more research to support that. And I think just in general, we need to see, you know, what actually happens when athletes are wearing CGMs and how their fueling might influence that and, and, and build a bit of a bank of research because there's just because this is so new, there's a lot of research in diabetics, but but there's not a whole lot in athletes. So yeah, yeah, yeah sure. And then you mentioned that the looking at during race fueling, and there might be discrepancies with regards to how, like for example, a gel every twenty minutes, but that's not showing up in when you're sort of looking at the CGM. How like what's happening if you can't see that twenty five grams of glucose in the bloodstream? What's happening? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it leads into yeah. It's sort of what I what I spoke about before. I think there's, you you know, the it depends on the individual athlete. I think there's a lot of um, different factors that can influence that and how an athlete might uptake that glucose. Um, we've been doing a lot of studies recently um, on looking at energy availability and using CGMs at the same time and. Um, what we're really interested in, I guess, is just that, is looking at, okay, if, if, if an athlete has a low energy diet um, and they take in a whole amount of, of glucose, so we've actually been using um, oral glucose tolerance tests, which are used to diagnose diabetes. Yeah, so they've got 75 grams of carbohydrate in them. So if, if someone's in a low energy diet and then they consume that oral glucose tolerance test, is their body then just sucking up that glucose and we don't see it? in the blood um or it does the opposite happen um and i and i guess that's something that we don't really know um so that is something that we've sort of been really looking into um in our most recent study is looking at okay based on an athlete's energy intake does their response to a, a you know an intake of a high amount of glucose does that change based on the energy status of that athlete yeah that's super interesting because i know that um low carbohydrate uh, also, women, for example, who are pregnant, then they have the OG oral glucose right. tolerance yep. test. Yeah, yeah, there's that sort of insulin yep. resistance. That's right, um, yes. Yeah, so that's, I guess, one thing that would be super interesting to see what happens yeah. there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think, 
Um, yeah, I think it, de- like I said, it depends on the individual athlete. I think, um, you know, if someone's super heavily endurance trained and, um, y- you know, they're more, um, adapted, I guess, um, to, to fat, um, and oxidizing fat, you know, potentially we might see blood glucose uptake into the muscle and, and use of glycogen. We might see a reduction in that. Um, but again, depends on the individual athlete. And I think it's it's really cool that we're sort of looking at that and seeing well, how, how might their response change in, in response to different um, habitual dietary intakes. Yeah, for sure. Is that something that you're actually looking at at your research currently or is that like sort of postdoc type stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, postdocs definitely on the horizon as well. Um, but at the moment we are looking at, at, um, at that. So we're, we're kind of looking, it's kind of, I guess, a bit of a sub part of my uh, current study. So at the moment we're looking at, um, the effect of altering energy availability on CGM measured whole body glycemia. So in trained athletes, so we're looking at, well, if, if an athlete is in low energy availability for a 24 hour period, what does their blood glucose do? Um, so we're monitoring their glucose with CGMs um, across the day and then into the night. The reason why uh, we look at nocturnal blood glucose is because we think it might provide a greater insight um, into these changes in glucose metabolism because as we've talked about a lot today, there's a lot of influencing factors that occur and if we can potentially remove two of the biggest influencing factors during the day, exercise and diet, and we look at glucose overnight, we might be able to more clearly see what might happen if an athlete is in a different energy status. So, um, so my study is looking at you know putting an athlete into low energy and then and then high energy and comparing. Okay, well, what's actually happening to their blood glucose in real time? Um, you know, if they're on a different energy diet for a really short period. And the reason why we've chosen a twenty four hour period is because. We really want to see, well, can these devices tell us acutely what's going on before we start seeing perturbations to other hormones and and things like that? Um, And then, yeah, a subset of that study, I guess, is looking at their response to that uptake of a high amount of of glucose and seeing what happens there. Yeah, super interesting. It would be interesting to look at um, urinary sort of cortisol across 24 hours in relation to um, glucose and and that as well to see what what you might what relationships we glean there because of course stress as you've Definitely. mentioned really potentially impacts and it would be nice to be able to see that that's exactly right and we yeah we we are measuring a number of different hormones I guess um, cortisol unfortunately is not one of them because we just don't have the budget for it but, <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, but we are looking at a number of other markers like IGF-1, um, growth hormone, leptin and ghrelin to see because they're nice. acute markers of energy availability. Yep. So seeing well, are they actually perturbed after 24 hours or, or does it take a little bit longer? Um, and then additionally to that, we're also looking at um, the CGMs, comparing those to capillary glucose and then comparing those to plasma glucose to see well how accurately is the CGM actually telling us about blood glucose because it's making that estimation, I guess. Yes, and in fact, that's I think that's one of the, the criticisms I've seen of CGMs is that they lag or something behind what might actually be happening. And it's like, how meaningful is that lag? I mean, yeah. it might be significant in a study, but is it actually meaningful in real life? 
Yeah, and you're exactly right. So they lag about 10 minutes behind um, actual blood glucose. And I think that that's definitely a consideration that people need to think about because, um, you know, you, you're often looking at that response in real time and going, okay, what's going on? But in the actual fact, it's 10 minutes behind what, yeah. what you're actually looking at. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that we need to be considerate of. So. Yeah, and I've often wondered that with that sort of infueling aspect of using CGMs is one, the lag, but also as an athlete, you know, as a runner, I know when I need fuel. Like, I don't like, I wonder, I wonder what the timing would be like compared to me feeling low blood sugar and maybe something would have sort of um, indicated to me on a CGM 10 minutes earlier or 15 minutes earlier that could have prevented that. But I do wonder about the timing of feeling low blood sugar versus. Um, what I might see on a CGM as well. Do we know that? Yeah. Um, look, I think again, I think the like the answer sort of depends on the individual. I think there's some individuals that might experience those symptoms before they notice that on the CGM, but I think there's also other individuals who might not experience those symptoms that are characteristic to say a hypoglycemic event. So they might not experience fatigue or or, or tiredness or you know that real hunger or so I guess in those cases that's when those devices might be more useful for someone when they, they don't experience those symptoms so without the CGM on we might not know that that's occurred um, and so getting that information would be beneficial um, I also think you know and and depending on how how closely we're monitoring the CGM oftentimes you can kind of get an idea of the direction in which the glucose is going. So in the next 10 minutes, you know, if your glucose is going down and, and it's at three and you can see that it's trending downwards, you you know that you're going to have a hypo. So yeah. I think um, being able to look at the data and know what's happening when you wouldn't otherwise know is beneficial. But again, I think needs more research unfortunately yeah which is, <laughs> yeah which is awesome amy like how great to be part of a project where you you start off by saying we just don't know we just don't know we just don't know whereas in five years time um we i could be having this conversation with someone else and they've been informed by the research that you're doing which is really exactly cool. yeah, yeah. And, and it is really cool and i know that there are some um, other PhD students in in Australia that have started and i'm sure there's some across the world as well because this topic has just become so uh topical I guess um since since I started my PhD and it's just I think it's yeah everyone is interested in it I you know I have people contact me all the time sports dietitians in Australia saying can we can we talk to you our athletes want to wear one um and 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 so I definitely think this area is only going to get bigger and there's only going to be more research done into it and I just think it's great I mean um yeah, the more research we can get in this area, the better. And I think it, it's a great technology. And if and, and if it works, then then that's great. Um, but yeah, I definitely think the more research we can do in this space, the better. Yeah, for sure. And then finally, Amy, um, you sort of touched on it a bit briefly, but um, what about a fat adapted athlete, like, you know, the low carbers, because I've seen um, data from people, and I want to say it's Zach Bitter, but it might not be, but, you know, where his glucose has gone very low, but he's actually really fine. And so is that indicating that his his ability to burn fat actually protects him somewhat from that hypoglycemic event, or do, do we know anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think, you know, when an athlete's at rest, there's probably not going to be much of a difference. Um, but as I sort of mentioned, I think, 
you know, um, we might see a reduction in that blood glucose that's being taken up into the muscle and the use of that glycogen um, as a fuel. We might see a reduction in that in a heavily endurance trained athlete during exercise. So, um, you know, we might see a difference in the maintenance of glucose readings, at least at submaximal exercise intensities. But yeah, again, I think there's definitely another space we can do more research into. But um, I think there is potential there to see some sort of differences. And I guess, again, that's sort of why we need to err on the side of caution when we're looking at these results. Um, because, you know, depending on the individual, you know, everyone's going to be different. And I think, yeah, someone who's heavily endurance trained might show a different response. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, and of course, the, the last argument that people come up with is, and I don't know which camp I'm in, because I do like data, but whether or not I use it is a different story, you know, but I know yeah. there are people who are complete data heads and so they've got their whoop, they've got their aura, they've got training peaks, they had their HRV measurement, and now they've got their CGM, like, and it's, they're measuring so much that they're almost like potentially losing touch of waking up and going, yeah. well, how do I feel today? You know, like, and, and, yeah. it, and it's, you can't always use your intuition, I guess, either, can you? Because sometimes you can feel rubbish, go out and have a good swim or a good run. And you're like, actually, I feel so much better and I would never have picked that. But, you know, yeah. is it possible that, that we just, you know, are just over, over data collecting? Yeah, I think that's possible with any sort of technology. And I know, um, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone termed it as glucorexia. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's the term I've heard. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah. But I think like with anything, it, it, you know, too much data can always be a, a negative thing. I think um, for the most part, I think you've got to be careful. And I know, I know as a sports nutritionist, you know, I'm always careful who I'm putting these devices onto. Yeah. Um, I think for someone who's going to become obsessive over the data, it's not going to be that helpful. Um, but for someone who is just interested um, and, and you know, they sort of like data and they like to see what's going on, I think it could be could be useful. But I definitely think as with anything and any technology, there's always the danger of falling into becoming too data-driven and, like you said, not being able to identify things for yourself because then if something does become problematic, you might not notice it. And, and as we know with technology, it's never foolproof. You know, one interesting thing that I've noticed in my experience with these devices is that um, I've had some athletes wear them and, and they'll say to me, oh, like I've just eaten 60 grams of carbs and I'm going into a hypo and, and I'd sort of say, okay, well, like that seems a bit strange. Go away and see what it's like in 15 minutes and they'll come back and they'll say, nope, it's still dropping. And what I've actually learned about that is it's the CGM coming out of the subcutaneous tissue and it's reading a false hypo. Oh, interesting. And so what that can be really dangerous for is people who are, you know, don't, aren't sort of standing back and going, okay, what? this is strange, what's going on here? And then they start going, oh, no, I'm in a hypo and, you know, all the food's <laughs> yes. going in and it's not going up and what's going on? And, and really just out of experience I'm able to say, well, it's actually not a real hypo, that's just and you replace the device and their glucose is fine. So um, I think, yeah, as with any technology, I think there's always going to be errors and, and it's not foolproof and I think it is still important to be able to identify and have that insight into what's actually going on because, like I said, there's times where 
you might see some data and it might not make any sense and and you need to be able to go okay well am I actually feeling like I'm in a hypo maybe I'm not you know yeah yeah. um so I think that's yeah it's it's the it's a risk we run with any sort of technology I think and and I think with these devices the best thing to do is to be really targeted with when we're using them so um, and I guess that's what our research is interested in looking at energy availability is how can we use them in maybe a more acute setting, having an athlete wearing them for for a day or, or two days or three days um, to look at their energy availability status rather than wearing one continuously. And I mean, that's something we need to be, uh, I guess, uh, mindful of is that these devices aren't cheap either. You know, they're a hundred dollars a pop. They last for two weeks. Um, so that's that's all the more reason to be really targeted with when we are using them. Yeah, yeah, nice. Amy, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed this conversation and I just think it's such an interesting area that a lot of people will be um, waiting with bated breath for the publication <laughs> of further studies. Um, how far down the line can we expect more papers from you and your research? Uh, well, <laughs> Hopefully by the end of this year, um, we've got another paper that will shortly be coming out. I hope um, uh, looking into the, the, I guess the day to day variability of of glycemia in endurance athletes. So, what do we expect, sort of on a normal day to day basis, to see in the fluctuations in glucose? Um, and the reason why we did that study was to get a bit of an indication. Okay, well, if this is what it looks like normally, then what is it going to look like when an athlete's, you know, not fueling adequately? Um, so hopefully that will be coming out soon. And then we're sort of trying to, um, I guess, um, finalize some of this, this study that's looking into the intervention, um, and looking at low energy and high energy. And so fingers crossed that will be out by the end of the year. Amazing. Can you, can you give us any insight into that first one that's almost published? Like the, I wouldn't say it's almost published, but, um, but we have seen that um, we know that the glucose fluctuations that occur across the day are relatively similar to that that we've seen in normal, healthy individuals. Um, okay. So there's been a few studies that have been done that have looked at uh, CGM use and, and normal blood glucose fluctuations in normal individuals, so those without diabetes. Um, and so the results that we've seen have been relatively similar to those. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's... Interesting. So, well, we look forward to that. Amy, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. And I will put links to your um, current published papers and, of course, um, your university profile as well, just in case anyone wants to reach out. Um, although yes, it sounds like you're pretty busy you. with all of the uh, <laughs> all of the dietitians across Australia uh, contacting you. But, hey, you'll get, um, um, you know, it's such an interesting topic. I'm not surprised at all. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. So that was such an interesting talk to Amy about CGMs and glucose utilisation. And of course it seems that a lot of the claims for its potential benefits are at this point in time a little bit hyperbole compared to what we actually know, which is generally the case really, isn't it? However, it's worth noting that glucose metabolism for an athlete and non-athlete is an important part of the performance puzzle. So it will be really interesting to see how this research progresses over the course of the next couple of years. So I'm super excited for Amy and, and what she's got planned. 
Now, because we are talking about athletes in general, it seems like a perfect opportunity to remind you that one way you can help both performance and recovery is currents. That black currant supplement created from New Zealand black currants that has clinical research to support its application in the sporting performance setting. And interestingly, you guys will know I've chatted to Fleur a couple of times on the podcast before, and she is the co-founder of Currents as a supplement. That the way that the black currants are produced in New Zealand really enhance the antioxidant properties of the black currant so it's super cold winters super hot summers that is the secret sauce to the black currant supplement currants now you might not know that currants very recently won the sports nutrition product of the year at the nutra ingredients europe asia and usa conferences that people is the triple crown and it also won the marquee award at the europe specialist sports nutrition alliance awards in december and last year began a collaboration with healthspan elite who was the official sponsor of the all blacks so you know it's fair to say that a number of athletes are choosing currents in their armor of supplements and really rated and there are just human clinical trials to support its use with regards to performance and recovery and this is one of the reasons why I also choose to include it in my everyday supplement regime. I'm not alone though we've got Ruth Croft, Anna Frass, Sean Collins, a whole bunch of other people in the running community and that's just a small snippet of the audience that Currens reaches. So if you want to try Currens Use the code MICKEY in capitals, that's M-I-K-K-I, to get 25% off your first order. And that is at Curran's website, www.curran's.co.nz. And we will pop links to that in the show notes as well. All right, team. So that's it for this week. And until next Wednesday, you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head to my website mickeywillardin.com where in addition to signing up to a number of my fat loss or sports nutrition meal plans you can book a one-on-one call with me. All right team till next week see you later.